Welcome to Talking Absolute Worship. We are looking at the readings for Lent 3. There's only three of us this week, so uh, maybe this will be briefer, although we have made bigger promises before. Neil, where are you going with the readings for this coming week? Well, this week throws us right into the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the Decalogue. Um, and then we've got, I think, other passages in our Psalm and Corinthians and indeed uh, in John where we get the sense of um, kind of what is the significance of uh, God being a God who gives us a picture of what it means to live God's way in the way that the Ten Commandments do. And um, one of the things that I was reading that I think kind of helped me as a way in was um, from the ever fruitful Walter Brueggemann, who is someone whose scholarship has kind of been uh, part of my ministry for many, many years. And he had a lovely phrase um, in his commentary on the Exodus, uh, on, the, on the Ten Commandments, which was, this is all about how God is to be practiced, which I thought was a rather wonderful phrase, you know, and I think this is another one of those occasions when we as Christian preachers would do well to try and um, give some honor to how Jewish scholarship handles, you know, what is their primary text. And, and it's, a, it's one of those Sundays where the danger is perhaps, we you know, we kind of sweep in as Christians, grab hold of the Ten Commandments and quickly carry them with us into Christianity. Um, and, you know, there is something tremendously powerful about recognizing how the Old Testament, how the Hebrew scriptures give this sense of what does it mean to be a community of people who are practicing God? And what is it? So, so the Ten Commandments, the first four are very much, you know, my personal relationship with God. And then the second set are very much us as a community. Um, so I think for me, just, you know, initially, um, that whole idea of practicing God has really captivated me. And it seems to me that then flows in, into the psalm, which is very much a psalm of celebration of, um, you know, how amazing it is that God has given us this word and what does it mean then to, to live it out. Um, I think... Then in, in Corinthians, you know, Paul is writing to a divided church, as we as we often reflect, um, and and is kind of trying to explore what does it mean that that God has done this incredible thing on the cross, and, and what does that mean for us? And then I I'm struck by the fact that the John text is the cleansing of the temple, um, and. You know, one of the things that I, I would be reflecting on, I think, is that so often what John does is he kind of takes what's in the synoptics and what we kind of, we like to kind of think, oh, I kind of know how this Jesus story works. And, and John, it feels to me like John is often someone who comes in just when you've almost put the last piece of the jigsaw in place. And John comes in and he takes the entire table with the jigsaw on and gives it a really good kick so that all the pieces of the jigsaw fly around and land in odd places. So 
we get the cleansing of the temple right at the beginning. We're, here we are in chapter two. In the synoptics, we get it as part of the passion narrative. What's that all about? And, and again, I wonder if that idea of, you know, how do we, how do we practice God is at the heart of what Jesus is doing. Um, because here's a gospel that begins with, you know, in, in the beginning was the word. So that's about God as creative word coming amongst us. And then we get, um, just before this, we get Jesus turning water into wine in Cana. And he doesn't just make a few bottles to make the wedding go okay. He makes a ridiculously large amount of the finest wine. As if, you know, practicing God is, is dwelling in this really abundant, wonderful place. And then coming to the temple and saying, actually, you know, this is meant to be a place where we practice God in a most amazing way and it's going wrong and it's becoming caught up in the ways of the world. Um, and it seemed to me that, you know, some of those might be threads worth exploring. And here we are in Lent. And I guess one of the challenges for us in Lent is to really dwell on, I guess, you know, how is our Christian journey how is that actually taking us on a different journey to the journey that we so easily inhabit because it's the journey that's with us every day in the life of the world? So I guess those might be some of the ways in which these passages were just beginning to come together for me. Yeah, Rachel. Um, I like the idea of um, sort of dwelling in the Old Testament and really... Um, thinking about that because often we um have a tendency I think as Christians to say oh you know well that was all the law and you know if you're following this then you're being too legalistic and it's not about the law it's about grace and we kind of dismiss all of that really quickly um and I I too was reading some odd bits of Brueggemann about uh, the Ten Commandments because where else would you go and there was some amazing stuff that he'd written um he I, I'm going to quote a couple of things all attempts to organize life separately from God's revolutionary purposes of freedom are other gods, racism, sexism, nationalism, consumerism, militarism. Um, and I really liked that. And then when he got on to talking about the Sabbath, he was describing the Sabbath as this concrete act. Um, I, I felt very revolutionary when I was reading him because he said former slaves distanced themselves from the abusive production schedules of the empire in a consumer economy like ours, covenant with God requires breaking the vicious cycles of consumption as well as production. And I thought, you know, it felt very, um, mm. you know, well, very socialist, which is where I stand. Um, if not, you know, slightly to the left of socialism, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, do, I do like the idea of spending a bit more time, um, not just saying, oh, well, this is a list of, uh, you know, this is a list of stuff that God thought was a good idea to organise community life. But actually, you know, can we what what can we get that's that goes sort of deeper, really? What did it mean for those first Israelites who, you know, suddenly had this kind of shocking, amazing experience? Um, and I think this is the time that God speaks directly to them. After that, then I think God speaks through Moses predominantly so you've had this sort of really 
I don't know, what do you do with that kind of experience where, you know, you've got this direct message from, from God giving you this stuff? How, how, how does that inspire you to live differently? Um, let's get away from the idea that it's just a list of things you shouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, I like that idea of, yeah, dwelling, thinking more about um, what that means to perhaps Jewish readers of the same text. I think that's um, I think that's all chiming with um, the places I went. Uh, I think I probably possibly went to the same book that Neil did. Um, uh, <laughs> I wrote down that quote that Neil referred to, where Ruggerman says, the, "These are not offered as a series of rules, um, but as a proclamation in God's own mouth." As it is, this is God saying this directly of who God is and how God should be practiced by this community of liberated slaves. Um, and there's a couple of things that occurred to me. First was actually that, before I read Bruggeman, um, and I sat down to read Exodus 20, like we all do, and I thought, oh yeah, Ten Commandments. And, you know, no one ne nearly didn't even bother reading them, because yeah, we all know that. <laughs> so let, so what, can I, what new thing can I say about the Ten Commandments this time? Uh, maybe I can just add 11, 12, and 13. Um, um, but um, I wasn't, wasn't so much struck by the actual Ten Commandments. So maybe this is a choice preachers want to wrestle with this this week. Um, whether to do a sermon where you pick out specific commandments and you go through them and your congregation are counting them off <laughs> and you're only at number four and... <laughs> 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 because they're all each um, in themselves is probably a servant um, or whether you take some kind of more overarching theme about what's going on about how to live um, but I was kind of struck before that they're even announced God says um, remember um, I took you out of slavery um, it's the first thing that God says um, as if they're likely to forget though of course if you read it seems they did pretty much very quickly forget what that was like. And it, it kind of seemed a little bit jarring to me to start with, to say, I brought you out of slavery. Here's some rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so there's quite a lot, I think, to play with there about what freedom means and how this kind of framework for living might actually set you free rather than chain you in um and the second thing i noticed um which i haven't noticed before uh, was was a rather startling bit again before we actually read them where god says if you reject me i will punish your children for three or four generations um it's it's there it's black and white um it's what god says and however, however much the new testament may say no no that's not really that's not what happens um it is actually there in black and white and then he says however if you love and obey um i will bless your children for thousands of generations and i thought where, where do we go with that and i, I kind of wondered whether this kind of links in with what neil was saying about um how how we live um how we practice um, this God in our living communities. Um, whether there's any mileage or whether it's stretching it too much um, to talk about the effects on community life of sin um, and how 
far into the future it affects community life when we damage community that can spread for three or four generations um, and the encouraging word when we bless communities by the way we live that can spread forward for thousands of generations and mm -hmm. i kind of thought there's a real word of encouragement and hope if we're the sort of people who bless community by the way we live by the way we practice god that can affect national life <laughs> local community life depending on how big we're thinking for thousands of generations by, by the way we live and i kind of think wow that's encouraging isn't it yeah mm. so um yeah you, you're kind of chiming with me here on on where to go with that i i yeah, Rachel. Perhaps the, uh, I'm just turning to Exodus a minute, but perhaps that, um, I know we take the, the bit at the beginning, you shall have no other gods before me as the first commandment, but perhaps we should go back, you know, a little further and take the, remember that I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt to be the first commandment. And we, and we do sort of overlook that bit um don't we um i was other things i've read again i think for, probably from bruggerman um on on other parts of uh, exodus in particular talk about how um when god's confronted with um justice or mercy um mercy wins and god's justice is nothing without god's mercy so i think um for me, those, the talk of those generations was quite a, a, a vivid example of that, that, um, you know, you've got the, 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 the punishment maybe for three or four generations, but the blessing for so much more. And I don't like to go too much into um, the sins of the fathers and <laughs> um, all of that, but I like what you said about community, um, about if we're people who bless our communities. Um, that's, you know, that's got a, a massive impact. I, I was kind of thinking of, and I can't remember the name of it, which is kind of frustrating, I should have written it down. Um, on one of my, especially a pre-COVID Netflix binge, a binge, binge, <laughs> a pre-COVID Netflix flicks. It's quite hard to say Netflix binge. Um, Are you going to cut that bit out and put it in again? Yeah, I'm going to cut it out and put it back again <laughs> several times. Pre-COVID Netflix binge um, I had on an, a, a fairly old American TV series about the um, introduction of drugs into an American um, city, how it started, and kind of had a picture of what it was like before and how it was completely destroyed by really white man's drug. Um, uh, they saw an opportunity, a marketing opportunity of, of bringing cocaine in. Um, and totally destroyed. And, and the pictures, and they weren't deliberately showing here's a before picture and here's an after picture, but it was striking the way they had done the cinematography uh, to show these streets and the lives of, of, of entire communities that were destroyed for generations. Um, uh, and it, I, for me, it was a very powerful picture. Um, I, I'm struggling to think of, a, of an equal but opposite, longer lasting blessing picture of how a, <laughs> a community was blessed but it would be good for preachers to come up with something like that yes neil i mean it's interesting isn't it that um but 
you know, one of the things that we're living through <laughs> is, is a global pandemic. Um, and um, one of the things that I think has been reflected on again and again and again is how do we find hope? You know, where is hope? Um, and, and, you know, if we were looking for an illustration, then maybe one of the illustrations would be that I think part of the language we're hearing, I mean, whether we can live up to it is another question, but it, you know, the whole language we're hearing is of building back better, is of, is of coming out of the crisis in ways that are more in tune with living gently on the planet, um, finding ways to, um, to, to live better together. Um, so, you know, we're at an interesting moment. I mean, here is, here is a Lent, unlike any Lent that any of us in the church have ever lived through. Um, and, and God willing, never will again. Um, you know, a Lent that, that is where the, the world is getting to grips with something that has almost stopped the world in its tracks. Um, and that sense of what does it mean to then build something that for generations to come is a blessing rather than something that's broken. I mean, one of the other things that picks up on that, that, that again was, was striking and helpful for me, was that part of what's going on in these passages, I think especially in the, in the Exodus and the Psalm, but it's, it's there also in the, in the Corinthians and the John, is um, these are passages in which, in a way, God says, either through what we're hearing or through Jesus, um, trust me. Yeah, when I when I say to you that there are some things that will lead your lives astray and there are other things that will be a blessing, you may not see it. You know, you may think, well, a little bit of usury never did anyone any harm. You know, a little bit of drug taking, uh, a little bit of, of consumerism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, I can control it. It, 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 it. It's okay. And what God, I think, is saying to us is, trust me. Trust me when I tell you these things are bad for you. You, you might not see. I mean, I wonder if this is where the generational thing comes in again. You know, we might not see mm. the impact of some of the things we're doing. But actually, our children will and our children's children will. Um, so again, that sense of practicing what God is telling us to do isn't just because another danger maybe of these passages is that they become hugely personal. You know, I want to be right with God. Yeah. So if I do, um, it's almost works righteousness, isn't it? You know, if I do these things, I will be right with God. But actually, it's it's not really about that. It's about how do we create a world in which we are practicing what God wants us to be. And that that can carry forward across generations. And, and maybe here's a sermon opportunity to say to a congregation, let's look at the life of our church now and wonder how, how might we be doing things that are a blessing, not, not for us, you know, not that make our church grow so that we can all sit back and I can say, what a great minister I am. You know, I quadrupled my congregation 
well done me. But maybe are we doing things that in 10, 20, 30, 100 years time will bear fruit? You're, you're, you're planting acorns, Neil. Planting acorns. Planting acorn. <laughs> Rachel. Yeah, we've um, we have we've we've lost um, over probably many decades that um, idea of of building for the future. And when you look at you know I don't know the sewage system in London or whatever, um, but those massive works that were designed and all the planting of trees, they were designed not for immediate benefit necessarily, but with a much longer term view. Um, and I think um, thinking about the, the current environmental crisis, we're, where we are, because people, you know, 200 years ago, probably kicked it off with um, thinking, well, this, you know, this, it won't hurt to, I don't know, to, to you know, go into this massive industrial production, or it won't hurt to do this. Um, and only now are the, are the results of that really becoming evident. So I think you could, if you wanted to take it in an environmental direction, you, um, in terms of practical um, outworking of how as community we live, not just as individuals, I think that's probably a way you mm -hmm. could go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where, where, was, was that where you were going to go with these readings, Rachel, or, or as you got another, another theme? I've, I've saved my my kind of my ideas, <laughs> which do link very much with what's already been shared. I seem to end up frequently at the moment coming back to the idea of choices um, as, as a theme. Um, and the idea that freedom is never absolute. Um, we have freedom, but that doesn't mean that's license to do what we like. Um, so we always end up serving something or someone and, and the choice is who or what um, are, we, are we going to serve? And I felt that there was a thread that came through all of the readings that you could pick up. So we've obviously talked about um, the Exodus uh, passage quite a lot already. Um, the psalm brings that out as well. I think that if you choose to serve God, then you get joy and wisdom. Um, it's not, it's not just, oh, well, the law is marvellous, but actually, you know, you, you get more than just um, thinking, oh, well, I'm keeping, I'm, I'm following the law. You, you, you get more than that. Um, going into Corinthians, the idea that you would freely choose to be a slave sounds completely ridiculous. Um, where, so you could, you know, you could go into that, um, the wisdom and foolishness of God stuff um if you wanted um and in john's gospel um you've got jesus always seems quite confrontational in john um you've it's almost like jesus is kind of saying to people all the time what are you going to choose um here i am what what are you going to choose and um the disciples, for the disciples, they connect what Jesus is doing with the psalmist. So for the disciples who've already got a glimpse of what Jesus is about, um, seeing what Jesus does in the temple really builds up their faith. Oh, look, you know, he's he's the psalmist because he's saying he could say zeal for your house will consume me. But um, 
for the people who don't understand what's going on uh, and for the people who are already kind of working against Jesus, perhaps in some ways they're, you know, they choose, they choose a different, um, they, they choose rejection and, or perhaps even willful misunderstanding of um, what, what he's saying. Who knows, who knows what's going on in their mind. But I think we're asked who we're going to choose, what kind of life we want to choose to live. Um, and I think a further question I would ask is how can we live lives of defiance and revolution um, that are not just trying to gently, um, trying to gently turn things around, but do we need to get a bit more, a bit more radical in, in what we're doing? The, the thing about the John um, reading that struck me, I did note, I had noticed before that in John it's, it's an early reading rather than a, a final week reading. Um, and I was thinking about the, about the hour will come. Um, John's, uh, the hour is coming because Jesus is challenging the world. And I think John almost sets it up. Um, John's very stage managed, isn't he? Um, so John puts it there, the hour will come. And you're kind of thinking, oh, what's that about? And we know, because we know the end of the story. But uh, actually the rest of what John says in his gospel is showing you that Jesus is offering this choice all the time. And because people will either choose to accept or reject Jesus, um, then that leads to that inevitable hour. Uh, but the second thing that I noticed about John is that Jesus if when when you're setting it up if you were to enact this passage you know you you could have a great time with a whip and you know turning everything over and driving everyone out but in the reading it doesn't say that um Jesus drove the people out it says try and get it right um he pulled out the coins of the money changers, he overturned the tables and he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. But it's kind of the livestock that get driven out, um, not the people. So I felt that it's not about being sent away from God. It's not about kind of punishment and detachment from God, but it's more about transformation, if you like, purification um, is, is a word that we're less comfortable with but it, I think you know we can see that there are things there are things in life that need to go if we're to allow God to transform us to be God's temple if you like so that's they're my ramblings <laughs> yeah, Neil. yeah that's, that's really helpful Rachel and I it's fascinating uh, I'm really glad that you've encouraged me to turn again to John <laughs> <laughs> to see what's actually there and the other thing that I'm struck by that would follow on from some of the things you were saying is towards the end where where you know the Jews say this temple has been under construction for 46 years mm -hmm. um, and you will raise it up in three days I mean I wonder if one of the other choices you know here we are for, for congregations in Lent I wonder if another one of our choices is to think about how attached we are to buildings and and how they're used and and that's fabulous i mean you know churches ch churches are sanctuaries in so so many ways and um and they can be beautiful and wonderful and and holy and 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 all of that and and i 
not want to diminish any of that. But it is perhaps also here is another one of those moments when we can just also gently wonder, um, you know, how much of what our attachment is to where we worship, how much of that is at, at times running the risk of distracting us from who we worship and, and what true worship is. And I think you've really helpfully pointed out it's it's not that. It's not that Jesus is throwing people out of the temple and saying you can't worship here. Mm. It's that he's saying there are things going on here that are distracting you from worship and, and they're getting in the way. And, and I guess the pandemic, you know, for most of us in our church life, we've had this unique experience of what does it mean to be church when we can't be in our building? And maybe again part of the what do we carry on what do we learn what do we where is there some treasure in the chaos and the disaster of the disease i guess part of it for me at the would would be about thinking what, what have we learned about what it means to be church when we can't be in our building because actually most of us <laughs> Most of us spend most of our time not in our buildings. I mean, I think it's one of the one of the risks and dangers for people like us, for clergy, is we probably can spend as much time as we like in church buildings. But most of our congregations are there for a few hours a week, if that. So for them, you know, what does it mean to live out the commandments, to honor God, to make choices? in Tesco's and in the bank and in the office and in homes where home life can be really tough. Yeah, um, I, I had two thoughts about the John. Um, the first being, this is gonna come up again um, in Easter week. So do I wanna blow John now? Um, I know it's not, not the John version, but the congregation is gonna say, well, he did that. I mean, come on, Phil. <laughs> he did that three weeks ago. Um, I, I, my congregation is so used to 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 this uh, cleansing of the temple, fitting into the into Holy Week, um, that I, I'm in two minds whether shifting out of there actually is a good thing because um, it allows us to see it in a fresh context. Or whether shifting out there makes something. Yeah, we've heard this bill. Give us something new when it comes to Holy Week. So uh, I don't. I'm, but the other. So that's one thing I wrote. The, the other thing I wrote, um, interestingly, in jo against the John passage when I was reflecting on this was, please, not another sermon about um, Jesus uh, cheering on Jesus condemning other people. Um, <clears throat> it kind of struck me as I read this. Um, this isn't Jesus condemning other people or the world. This is Jesus coming into the courts of the temple, into, <laughs> into the, the religious world, if you like. Um, mm. We're going to make any translations to today's world, like Rachel was saying. Um, she's going to smash up the church. Um, but which bits would you choose? I, I mean, this is the dilemma, isn't it? What, what are the equivalents um, to the money changers and the and the and the animals and the and the coins uh, that are being overturned and it, it kind of struck me that sometimes i think we i know it's a dramatic passage sometimes i think there's a danger in over dramatizing it and saying 
these things there, they were obviously complete evil. Um, when actually what I suspect was the case was they were all well-meaning things contributing to a well-meaning life, uh, of, of temple life, of, of necessary things that seemed at the time to be necessary and have grown by centimeter and millimeter um, to become established practice. That you know, the sacrificial system did require this stuff. It did need a particular kind of coin, and and bit by bit, it was accommodated um, into the life of the temple. Um, but identifying how we're doing that is a whole lot more difficult, particularly if we are the ones doing the identifying. So I wonder if maybe we should be asking other people or taking seriously the criticisms of people outside the church saying how hypocritical we are rather than looking at ourselves and saying, where are we going wrong here? Oh, it seems we're not going that wrong. <laughs> but they were. Um, and then we have another sermon about cheering on our favourite group of, of um, people who Jesus might um, take his whip out to. And actually, Jesus is taking his whip out to us and our practices and, and the way we've organised our life around religious institutions. Yeah, Rachel. Um, one of the things that I read about the Ten Commandments going back there is the, um, I'm trying to find in my notes where it was, but it's the one about um, taking the Lord's name in vain, which is probably not quite how it's put in the new RSV. But, uh, and, and, um, Again, it was probably Brueggemann who, who wrote the commentary that I was looking at, but uh, said it's not about swearing and bad language, which is what we tend to reduce it down to. But it's about using God's name to endorse any kind of um, activity or belief that, that we want, you know, we want God as our kind of patron. Um, and so... I think that ties in with what you were saying, Phil, about having a look at ourselves, what... Um, what what little things are we doing where we say oh well, you know but this is what god requires of us um you know this this is what this is what god is asking us to do and uh, is it <laughs> mm. Um, mm. I, I i again this might now sound like me pointing fingers at other people <laughs> you said it wouldn't do um but it strikes me that in many ways the ten commandments have become absolutely that when you look at what happens in america with the I think they've resolved the disputes in the Supreme Court now as to whether they're allowed to have the Ten Commandments posted on courthouse walls. And I think they eventually said no, didn't they? Um, but now courthouses have them out in on the steps, just outside the, the door. They have the Ten Commandments. And I'm told uh, by an American commentator who was commentating on this passage uh, that people have now stuck them on their front lawns. You can buy... Um, little plastic backed copies with a stake that you put in your front garden of the Ten Commandments and you point them out at the street. Um, and um, he said, ironically, he said, I've driven, oh, I've walked past people with these signs in their front gardens on Sunday and they are mowing around the sign. They <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have rest. <laughs> They're very sorry. Maybe they should... Print them double-sided, he said. house <laughs> and at the street. So I thought that was a fascinating little illustration. Right. Yes, there's a lot to get our teeth into there, I think. And um, we spent a little bit more time um, 
with the Old Testament and the New, but I think they found some powerful connections, particularly with um, John's Gospel. Um, what about the rest of worship? Um, what about some of the other ways we can incorporate the imagery of these readings and the ideas of these readings into our, 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 our worship life? Neil, what have you come up with? Um, I guess a couple of things. Um, uh, yeah, what, one was um, the fact that the psalm is, you know, very much a psalm that lends itself to being used within the context of worship. So I was delighted to see that if you have Rejoice and Sing in your congregation and you turn to number 673, you find Psalm 19. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think one way would be to simply, yeah, you know, let that become part of part of a liturgy, um, either using it from from there or from various translations, um, something that was perhaps a call and response that that would be um, something quite powerful. A uh, couple of other things. One was um, that. Uh, one of the one of the things I was looking at talked about the fact that um, another way for us as Christians to enter into how the Jewish community handles and holds and honors and celebrates things like the Ten Commandments is to notice that um, in the Jewish festival of Shavuot, they spend often a whole night as a family reading Torah, reading the scriptures, but also reading together commentary on the scriptures. So actually, you know, one thing you could do would be to say to a congregation, okay, you know, here's a Sunday when we're going to dwell a bit on the giving of the Ten Commandments. Why don't we wrap that around, you know, with whether it be 24-7 prayer or whether it be something happening in a building or whether it be something happening in our homes, you know, I mean, I, I, I wonder if often we feel all sorts of guilt and agony about, you know, do we spend enough time with the Bible? Do I read the Bible enough? Um, here might be a Sunday, a, a weekend, a time in Lent, when we could actually say, why don't we, as a congregation, together and individually, carve out time just to read it, just, you know, do we say, okay, let's read Exodus together or something. Um, and then the final thing, if I just share my screen, was um, thinking about, oh, that's a bit sad. It's not there anymore. <laughs> I thought I was going to find, can I find it? <clears throat> oh here we go so um there's no shortage of images of things like the cleansing of the temple and so this is one by el greco the beauty of this is um you can search for it using google but you can then in google images you can deliberately say i only want images that have creative commons uh, public domain copyright so there's no danger that I'm breaking copyright and this is El Greco painting Jesus cleansing the temple 
And you also um, ask that you don't have nudie images in it. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> a little bit of that is always okay in worship, I've been told. Because uh, <laughs> we're a liberal denomination. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is just one. There are loads and loads and loads of images uh, of, these of, of these passages of scripture. It's one that artists have really kind of relished painting. Mm. Um, and, you know, they have their pluses and their minuses. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of risks attendant. But, but nevertheless, you know, this might be a Sunday where if you can project an image or if you can print an image or whatever, um, there's a lot going on in this particular painting by El Greco that, that you could pick up on to both amplify some of the things we've been talking about and maybe in contrast to them as well. Um, you know, and, and maybe one of the things I do with an image like this is just let it be and, and, and not feel the need to preach on the image, but maybe just, you know, at a point in worship, show the image and, and invite the congregation just to be still and, and, and just to dwell on how does this passage of scripture speak and, and, and what is this artist doing with it? I think that's um, and that's, that's a good insight um, and, uh, about how how we use art. Um, we, I think quite often the assumption is we'll show them a picture and then we'll tell them what it means, and uh, not really the most powerful way of using art. Um, one of the ways I've started using it now is in particularly while we're talking about Zoom preaching, is uh, rather than have the Zoom screen and when it comes to the sermon having a massive picture of me um, while they all watch me. Um, preaching is I will put up a picture um, and then I'll be a much smaller picture of me in the corner that they can choose not to look at and then they can look at the picture that relates in some way uh, to the story I'm preaching but that picture would lend itself mm. kind of ideally um, to that I think. Um, with, the, with the Ten Commandments I think that's a really powerful idea you know, they might go somewhere I mean we, we it is good to have something around which to organize and focus our minds. The Ten Commandments seems to be kind of a bit of a aching hole in our um, church practice. I'm, I am told that there used to be in some Christian churches a mm -hmm. practice of reciting the Ten Commandments. And it used to happen most often liturgically it used to come after the prayer of confession and the words of absolution the congregation would stand and recite the words of the of the ten commandments um, the idea being that once you had confessed your sins and uh, been given the words of absolution you then were free to express um, these commandments which are about going out to practice god um, again um, and so, and so, a lot of chapels had them at the front on the wall. They did at Taunton URC until very recently when they took them yeah. down <laughs> uh, in order to reveal the windows behind them, which are lovely and bring lots of light in. But there were two big um, arched um, plaques, one one of which had the Ten Commandments written on it, mm -hmm. oldie language. They were very difficult to read, but they still have them up in the balcony. Um, and lots of chapels had Ten Commandments written on that have since been whitewashed over for some reason. Yeah. But I do remember yeah. as a kid hearing a, one of those apocryphal, I'm sure, apocryphal um, uh, 
preacher's uh, sermon illustrations about the church that whitewashed over the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. It probably goes back a long time. And the church whitewashed them over because they wanted to, they wanted to get rid of all this um, superstitious stuff that had been written on the walls. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and every year they discovered that the words kept coming back. <laughs> over again but the ten commandments wouldn't be silenced <laughs> yeah, i'm sure that was available on the internet somewhere <laughs> illustrations <laughs> rachel what have you come up with um i was thinking of um with going to the psalm for the kind of prayers of praise and um just really just focusing on the first verse and asking people to share um, in what ways are the heavens telling you about the glory of God? Because for some people, you know, it might be, I don't know, a beautiful flower or for some people it might be a nice view or a sunset or, you know, there are all sorts of ways that God speaks to us through the natural world. So I thought it would be nice to get people to share. How is it that the heavens are telling you in particular about the glory of God um, this week? Um, there, there were some films done, done in the 80s by um, a Polish, I think it was Polish director called Kislowski, uh, called Decalogue. And it was a series of 10 short films um, based on each of the Ten Commandments. And um, the first, Decalogue One, is um, about the, uh, the first commandment, about having no other gods. Um, and I thought I might use that because uh, it sort of raises the question about where do we where do we put our faith? Um, it's it's only if it's not a very long film, so um, it might be something that you could show or you could get people to watch before the worship. Um, quite, it probably works easier if you're worshiping via Zoom, but because um, you you know, you perhaps you could send it, I don't know whether it's available. It's quite an old film, uh, goes back, yeah, I'm sure it's the 1980s and he's exploring what the Ten Commandments mean in the 20th century. So I'd probably look at him. Um, there's the Choose very, Life. Sorry, that would, fit very, that would fit very well with Neil's um, festival of the Ten Commandments. So yeah. Uh, you have a day or whatever where you focus on it and if you could find some copy of of that for people to reflect on through the day one at a time and and pattern out the day that would be that would be fantastic yeah sorry yeah. yeah but i thought those two went together quite well um i was thinking again about that choose life poster that we've talked about before that i think phil had when he was a young a young man found it now it is in the study yeah <laughs> yeah so, so that there's always mileage in in that um i was thinking about prayers of intercession and i was wondering if it's possible to imagine a world where we or where the powerful have made different choices um and offering that in some kind of way as as a means of praying for for the needs of the world what would the world look like if you know um yeah. those kind of thoughts yeah. Cool. Well, while you were talking earlier on, Rachel, you, you, I think you used the phrase, um, you've, you've got to serve somebody. Yeah, you've got to serve yeah. someone. Um, and um, sent me off like, I've heard that phrase, I've heard that phrase. Um, 
And uh, it's Bob Dylan. It, it, I'm trying to turn it like a distant cog whilst also concentrating on everything else you were saying. Um, where have I heard that? Where have I heard it? It's Bob Dylan. I think it's Blood on the Tracks. Um, he has a song called You've Got to Serve Somebody. And it, it's, a lot of his sort of Christian material is kind of on that album, uh, Blood on the Tracks. Um, and so I, I just looked it up. Um, and it says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And, and there's about 150 verses. Um, you may be a state trooper. You might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. Good rhyming there. <laughs> You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be someone's mistress, maybe someone's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And it's a fabulous little song. And it just got, I mean, like Bob Dylan songs just go on and on. It's the same tune over and over again, but it's something hypnotic about it. So you could wangle that in there. It's, 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 never, it's never a bad moment to include some Bob Dylan. Um, I reckon um, <laughs> that is almost always the case. Um, no servant is ever made worse than including Bob Dylan in it somewhere. Um, I looked up a couple of things. Um, I'm going to share my screen. Um, if I'm technologically able. Which bit am I here? This one. Um, no, nothing dramatically different to the sorts of ideas that you've had. Um, instead of reading the psalm, um, you could look up uh, sort of like a video. Yeah, so that kind of thing uh, speaks for itself. Um, or if you've got an older congregation um, or more classically minded, uh, they will almost, when all of them, when they hear the psalm, think of this, which is Haydn's creation. kind of speaks to itself. Um, Haydn's creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Um, there's loads of bits and pieces around the Ten Commandments. So when I live in Devon, <coughs> you can go up on to Dartmoor and you can find the Old Testament stones. Um, so were I to follow Neil's idea of a um, Ten Commandments festival, it might include a pilgrimage up to mm -hmm. um, Old Testament stones. There they are, the two tablets. I think they've recently been restored. I think that might be the rest a, 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 a picture post-restoration because they had kind of weathered away so you could hardly read any of it. But I think now you can actually read them. And I've seen some people locally who've been up recently and photographed them. 
Um, and they're up on Dartmoor, fairly easily accessible if you like jumping up hills in walking boots. Um, that, that, that's the actual place where um, Moses dropped them. Um, up on Dartmoor. <laughs> <laughs> but there they are, um, two tablets. I, I can't imagine how on earth Moses managed to carry one of them, but there you are. Um, they are quite large. Here's what I was talking about earlier on, an American courthouse. Um, and now they're not allowed to have the Ten Commandments on the wall of the courthouse because it uh, contradicts the separation of state and religion, according to the Supreme Court. Uh, but they can stick them outside, um, which they do um, in some counties. Um, but of course, they spell them wrong, so they don't count. And honor my father and my mother. All apologies to any Americans watching. Um, Neil highlighted some artwork. Um, I don't know what it is I like about this. It's obviously the turquoise suit, but um, I yeah, that is an awesome color. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really, really sorry I haven't noted the name of the artist here because I looked him up and I couldn't find any information about him at all. <clears throat> He's ex exhibited in, um, I think it's Northamptonshire, in, in an Anglican church there, and he is a, a, an artist who lives in Britain. Um, he's not widely displayed and there's very, very, very little information about him. Um, and I've forgotten his name and really that's not very good of me, is it? I should have written it down. Um, I just put a picture rather than the information about the artist. Um, so I might come back to this um, and in the um, edited version, I'll add some um, text as to who that is over the top of this video. Um, because it's not fair on him to show his work and not name him, but it's fabulous. He's done a whole series of stuff. Yeah, Rachel. I was just wondering if the fact that Jesus is in that lovely turquoise suit and the doves are turquoise and the money is turquoise, whether there's something being said about how none of those things really belong in the temple. Yeah. I, I, I hadn't come up with anything quite as clever as that as to why the money and the doves were, were turquoise, but it's certainly striking. <laughs> and and there's a kind of a reformed clergyman as well, isn't there? Yeah, I, I, I liked it uh, because of what I said earlier about please not another sermon about Jesus um, driving out um, other people. <laughs> and, and as Rachel said, not people, uh, driving <laughs> out other practices that other people are engaged in rather than practices that I am engaged in or that we are engaged in. So I just thought it was a striking image. I'm not sure where you go with it, but um, that's not my job. Um, come up with your own ideas about where you go with it. It's a striking image. Um, and I will, um, you needn't hear this because I will have added it. So I'll cut this bit about me laughing on about adding the text about who the author is because it will have appeared on the screen. Um, it's interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, just thinking about uh, that picture because it does look obviously it's very contemporary and very <laughs> ikea perhaps the furniture um <laughs> I've, I've been in in churches where they've got um the capacity to have sort of multifunctional worship areas so they can move all the chairs around and whatnot um and i've, I've encountered a kind of resistance to having any kind of you know money-making activity in that particular space and um it it always strikes me as kind of funny because they say oh you know we'll be making it a den of thieves um, if we have uh, you know if we have a jumble sale here or something um 
And so I do find it quite interesting, the things that we um, maybe, maybe hangups that we, that we have that have a slight biblical connection, but we've, um, yeah, we've sort of taken them and become fixated on them in some ways. It's also a bit like raffles and things, isn't it? That can also get you into hot water. If we took, if we took the, uh, the, the, the modern day church interpretation of Jesus cleansing the temple, it could just be translated as Jesus hates tombolas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, as long as you don't have a tombola, you're okay with this. Yeah. <laughs> you're okay yeah. with this. <laughs> or a raffle. You go there because that's gambling. That's serious stuff. <laughs> you can win that uh, bar of soap that's been through the raffle 29 times now. Yeah. I would say this is quite a striking picture. Um, and I'm not sure 100% where you go with it. It's from Latin America and it's from the OSPAAAL. Um, it's, it's, that is something like the organization um, for Asian, African and something else, liberation. It's one of the liberation movements that came out of Cuba. Um, and they often had radical images of Jesus like this um, in the promotion of their cause of liberation. Um, and obviously it's striking because Jesus is carrying a gun, which is just one step further than carrying a whip. But um, the, and, and people were quite resistant to that, Jesus carrying a gun. Oh no, Jesus wouldn't do that. Uh, but we just had a story where Jesus had a whip. Um, so where is the line? But, you know, where would Jesus go in this, in this, in this struggle to overturn things? Um, and you might say, well, okay, that, that's a step too far. Okay, so what's not a step too far? What, no, what, what does it mean? Really where, where is Jesus on this spectrum of, of, of resistance to empire, as uh, Rachel was saying earlier on? Um, where, where is Jesus on that? Um, just be, a, yeah. Um, I just think it's a provocative image that um, sometimes it, it's good to be provoked a bit because then it brings stuff out um, in a conversation that might not otherwise be there. So uh, yeah, um, stuff like that. And there's, there's tons of images around like that that you could find, particularly from Latin America, um, where the, Jesus has a gun strapped over his shoulder. They're, they're not uncommon to find those kinds of images. So um, yeah, uh, quite a lot of stuff to get our teeth into this week. Um, and I, I'm kind of really, I think, grateful for this opportunity. I've, I've arrived at a position where I wasn't at the beginning of this conversation about thinking more seriously about where we place the Ten Commandments. Um, and I kind of, um, I was struck by what you said at the beginning, Neil, about this being really a foundational text um, for, uh, for for the Jewish community, um, which which we have grown out of and alongside. Um, as our, as our brothers and sisters um, for, for, uh, for centuries. And so it is a foundational text for us. Um, mm -hmm. And how do we deal with it um, other than in a facile way of, of um, sticking it up outside courthouses or on our front lawns as some kind of totem? It's more than a totem, but what, you know, if it's not, then what is it? Um, yeah, that's not meant as a thought for the day. Um, but is there anything else that anyone's got that, um, that has emerged before we uh, bring today um, to a close with a prayer.
One of the things that picking up on that just that last point, one of the things I was reading pointed out that it, you know there are some very easily accessible Jewish uh, texts that reflect on um, Hebrew scripture. Uh, so uh, a couple to name would be the Jewish Study Bible um, and the Torah Commentary, and you know those are those are readily available. Uh, and they give you, uh, you know, they they give you a way in to how Jewish synagogue worshiping communities are reflecting on these same passages. Now, you know, obviously, um, we we legitimately and 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 powerfully want to say we're doing it as Christians and and we're Christian ministers and Christian preachers. But nevertheless, you know, not least given the rise in anti-Semitism and, and, and the Christian history of engaging with anti-Semitism, I think where there are opportunities, for, even, if, even if it doesn't come, even if I don't quote it in my preaching, I wonder if for me, for the integrity of my journey with a text like this, to actually say I'm going to spend a bit of time with blessed saintly Walter Brueggemann because he's so good but maybe I'm also going to spend a bit of time with with an explicitly Jewish rabbi and scholar reflecting on the Ten Commandments because I suspect there is treasure here that it's hard for me to completely get to because I'm so much reading it from the perspective of yeah, but then Jesus comes. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I read a little bit um, <clears throat> from a, a Jewish scholar called Harry Torshner um, this week. Um, he wrote a book called The Riddle in the Bible. Um, and like any scholar who gets an idea and then writes a book about it, he stretches it well beyond <laughs> the original idea because that's what you have to do when you write a book. You take a simple idea and then you go, oh, yeah, right, yeah. You see it everywhere. Um, anyway, I really wrote a book um, about the riddle in the Bible and he had uh, one of the places he looks is Psalm 19, which is one of the ones, we, which is the one we were looking at today. And he says there are riddles, the riddles all over the place in the Bible, particularly in Psalm 19. Um, so he says... Um, my pathway extends to the end of the heavens and nothing is hid from my heat. Who am I? <laughs> I'm the sun. That's how he reckons Psalm 19 was constructed, like a riddle. And then he says, um, I have no speech and no words, yet my sound goes throughout the world. Who am I? I, I am the heavens. Um, and so I don't know if there's some mileage in looking at riddles, um, and you could possibly, I was thinking, because he didn't extend into Corinthians, he didn't, he didn't trouble himself with the New Testament. <laughs> um, but there's certainly mileage for that in the Corinthians passage. Um, um, I am foolish, but the most wise thing in the world. <laughs> I am weak, but the strongest thing you'll ever know. Um, who am I? <laughs> Um, so I wondered if there's some like mileage just for playing around with riddles um, a bit with your congregation. Um, and I think that fits very nicely into Jewish scholarship. They love stuff like that. Um, and humor is uh, you know, very much a real part 
a real part of that. Um, <clears throat> yes, that's Rabbi, um, is he a rabbi? I forget, no, a scholar, Harry Torshner, uh, but it's spelt with lots of C's and Z's and things. <clears throat> so um, I might put that up on the screen as well as to, as to how to spell the name Harry Torshner and people can look that up and uh, look for riddles in the Bible. But yeah, I think that's very powerful because um, we have more than uh, we, we have more than one set of spiritual roots to um, to be nourished from, and um, we might as well take all the nourishment we can get when we're exploring uh, these words that are common to our traditions. <laughs> okay, it is a tall a, a, a tall task. It is a, <laughs> a great task to which we're called to bring these uh, words um, that have brought inspiration uh, 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 and comfort and have disturbed people over many centuries. Uh, it's our task to bring those words to our congregations. And uh, we want to bless you as you go out um, to take these words and bring something to your congregation. Rachel's going to lead us in prayer. That's right. Loving God, we thank you that your will for us is for freedom and flourishing and well-being. And we pray that all those who prepare to lead worship on this Sunday will be, will be able to enable your people to hear your words of grace. So may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. <laughs>